you have a Bible, you can open to John chapter 16. We're going to read together in a few moments, John 16, 1 to 11. There's an outline in the bulletin you can track along uh, with the sermon. I'll just remind you one last time, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. We won't be coming by with the elements, so if you need those, they're available for you in the back of the room. This is week 3 of 11 in a uh, sermon series about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So just remind you of what we've talked about leading up to this Sunday. Week 1, the question that we wrestled with was who? Who is the Holy Spirit? And what we said week 1 is He is the one who proceeds from the Father. He is the third person of the Trinity. He's a person, not a force, not a it, uh, not a feeling, but He is a person. Just as much as the Father, just as much as the Son, He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and with the Son within the Trinity, and He is the one who eternally proceeds from the Father. We said the Son is eternally begotten. That doesn't mean that He was born. That doesn't mean that He had a birthday. But He is eternally begotten of the Father and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. It doesn't mean that there has ever been a time where the Holy Spirit did not exist. It just describes His relationship to the Father and also to the Son. So that was week one, who is the Holy Spirit. Week two, we begin to ask the question, what? What does the Holy Spirit do in our lives? In week two, which was last week, we looked backwards. And we specifically said, what has He done in the past in inspiring the Scriptures? And that is a past work of the Holy Spirit. That is a work that He completed through a period of time. We said roughly 1,500 years through 40-some different authors, three different languages. But it is a finished and a completed work. We are not sitting around waiting for any more inspired books to be added to the Scriptures. But we have the full counsel of God's Word and the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. We talked about the idea that the Holy Spirit breathed out the words of Scripture. That the Holy Spirit, as Peter describes it, carried men along as they wrote the words of Scripture. So that the end result is that the Bible certainly had human authors, but ultimately uh, has a divine author. And that divine author is the Holy Spirit. So this morning, we're still wrestling with this question, what does the Holy Spirit do? do, but we're no longer looking backwards, we're actually looking to our lives in the present. And in the weeks ahead, you can see where we're headed. The Holy Spirit convicts, go back, regenerates, seals, fills, glorifies, gifts, grows, intercedes, and transforms. As we've laid these topics out over the next several weeks, this is the way that we experience the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It begins in real time as we're reading the Scriptures, we're hearing the truth of God's Word, and the Holy Spirit brings conviction to our lives. Now, our passage, John 16, is rooted in a larger passage that you need to understand if you're going to make sense of what we're looking at this morning. When you read the Gospel of John, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 all go together. That is one single story. It's a long story. John uses a lot of words to describe things that Jesus did and said in this one sitting. In John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. They're in the upper room. They're about to celebrate the Passover. It's the night before Jesus is crucified. John 13, Jesus washes their feet. In John 17, Jesus prays. 
He prays first about his own glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. Then he prays for the men who are in the room with him. And then, if you're a believer, he prayed for you. He prayed for all of his people who would come to faith all the way down through the ages. It's what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in between that prayer and Jesus washing the disciples' feet, John 14, 15, 16, is something that we call the upper room discourse, or sometimes we call it the farewell discourse. It's a sermon that Jesus preached to the twelve right before they celebrated the Passover on the night before he was crucified. And in that sermon, Jesus is saying goodbye. He's saying farewell. And he's in this upper room with them. And right in the middle of it, John 15, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says that he is the vine and that we are the branches. And he says the goal is to stay connected to the vine. And the way that you, the branches, stay connected to the vine is that you abide in Jesus. You continue to believe in Jesus. You continue to trust in Jesus. And Jesus told his disciples something that we need to hear. He said, if you are abiding as a branch in the vine, you can expect that the world will treat you, the branch, just like it treated the vine. If you're the student, the world will treat you the way that it treated the teacher. They hated Jesus and they persecuted Jesus. They were just about to put Jesus to death. And Jesus said, you can expect that sort of treatment from the world. They didn't like Jesus. They won't like you. Now, that's hard for the disciples to hear. But Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you to bear that hatred and that persecution alone. I'm going to send someone, not something, someone to help you. It's the spirit of truth. It's the helper. It's the the parakletos, the comforter that we sang about earlier. Jesus says, I'm going to send this one to be with you and to help you. Now, that brings us right up to the end of John 15. And we're going to pick up right after John 15, 27, and we're going to read the very next section of verses in John 16, 1 to 11. So this is the words of Jesus. He said, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Father, this morning we're thankful for your word. Thankful that your spirit inspired 
John, as he wrote these words, your spirit carried John along as he wrote these words. Your spirit breathed out these words even as John wrote them. We're thankful for truth about you, our Father, about Jesus, the Son who died for us, and even about your spirit. We pray this morning as we gather together around your word that your spirit would do his work of conviction in our hearts, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot of interesting things Jesus said in the passage that we just read. We're not going to give equal time to all of them, but we want to understand the passage uh, as we've read it. We want to understand it in the context, and we want to try to focus on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the question that we'll begin with is, based on the verses we just read out of John, John 16, 1 to 11, what does this text teach us about who the Holy Spirit is and how we can expect Him to be at work in our lives? The first truth is this. John 16 is a Trinitarian passage. It's a Trinitarian passage. Listen, you cannot understand the person and the work of the Holy Spirit apart from knowing the truth about the Father, apart from knowing the truth about the Son, and apart from understanding some basic baseline truth about the triune God as He's revealed Himself. The Trinity. There is one God. There are not three gods. There is only one God. And from eternity to eternity, He exists as a trinity of persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal. None are greater than the others. They are co-eternal. None of them existed before the others. One God in three persons. That's how God has revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures. Now, our passage doesn't explain all of that. But our passage contributes to what the Bible says in its entirety about the triune God. And in this very passage, we read about God the Son talking about God the Father. And he says to his disciples, they don't know me and they don't know the Father, speaking about the world. They don't know God the Father. They don't recognize God the Son. He talks about the Father being the one who sent him on a mission. The Father. So loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He sent Him on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost. And not only does Jesus, God the Son, talk about God the Father, but He also talks about God the Holy Spirit, saying that He's going to send one to be with them and to help them and to walk with them and to empower them and one to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now look, we don't have time to chase this rabbit all the way down the trail this morning, but we're going to chase it next week. And I'm just teeing this up this week so that you're ready next week. Within the Trinity, there is perfect unity. There are no rogue members of the Trinity. The Son is not a wayward Son. And the Spirit does not go and do whatever the Spirit wants to do apart from the plan created from the foundation of the world between the triune God. There is unity within the Godhead. There is unity in His person and in His work. When you think about the work of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, it is never, never, never divorced from who the Father is and who the Son is and how they have acted to save sinners. There is unity to God's person And there's unity to his action. Now, we're going to come back and hammer that home next week. 
Truth number one, this is a Trinitarian passage. Truth number two, Jesus wanted his disciples to have realistic expectations about the future so they would endure as disciples. This is the first six verses that we read in John 16. Jesus said some things here that are hard for the disciples to hear. Jesus says some things to the disciples here that he admits, I didn't say this stuff to you from the beginning. When we were back on the Sea of Galilee and we were throwing the nets in and you were trying to figure out who I was and you hadn't really left everything, I didn't say to you day one, they're going to hate you and kick you out of the synagogue. But I'm saying it to you now, Jesus says. And I'm saying it to you now because I've been with you up to this point, but I'm about to leave. And I'm not going to be with you, and I want you to know. Jesus is honest with his friends. He wants them to know what's coming. And he says, the reason I want you to know what's coming is I want you to endure. I don't want you to fall away. I want you to remain faithful in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, with himself. And to that end, he's going to send a helper. We've talked about that word a couple of weeks ago. We're talking about it again this morning. The Greek word is parakletos. Uh, In the ESV, it's translated helper. In the song we sang at the beginning of the service, it was translated comforter. Sometimes it's translated advocate. Sometimes it's translated the counselor. There's not a great English word to get the idea, but here's the idea. The parakletos, the Holy Spirit, is someone sent to come alongside you and to be with you and to help you through a time of difficulty. And Jesus has said to them, There's going to be times of difficulty. They didn't like me. They're not going to like you. They opposed me. They're going to oppose you. They don't know the Father. They don't know the truth. But I'm going to send someone to help you, to be with you, and to walk with you through this trouble. Why? So that you will endure and that you'll continue as followers. So this is a Trinitarian passage. The aim is endurance. Number three, Jesus told his disciples that his going away would be to their advantage so that he could send the helper. This is verse 7. Look what Jesus says in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. How many of you remember being a child and you broke a rule in your home. How many of you remember being disciplined for breaking a rule in your home? How many of you remember getting a spanking for breaking a rule in your home? How many of you were about to receive that busting and your loving mom or dad looked at you and said, I want you to know this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you? Anybody ever say that to you? If they did, your reaction as a five-year-old or whatever was to probably think or maybe say, yeah, right. I'm pretty sure it's going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Are you kidding me right now? What kind of thing is that to say? It's going to hurt you more than me. You would probably never say it because you're in a sanctuary, you're in a worship center. But some of you have probably read verse 7 where Jesus says, it is to your advantage. It is better for you, Christian, that Jesus leaves than he stay. 
you've probably read that and thought to yourself, yeah, right. What kind of thing is that to say to your friends? How in the world is it better that Jesus isn't physically, personally here with us? You understand there was a period of redemptive history in the Gospels where Jesus was as present with his friends as the person sitting next to you is. And you've probably had the thought, as you've read John 16, 7, you probably thought to yourself, I don't know, Jesus, it'd be pretty cool if you were here, if I could see you and touch you and talk to you and walk with you. How great would it be if Jesus could show you all the best fishing holes just like he did his friends? The disciples never catch a fish without Jesus in the Gospels. He's always showing them where to catch fish. He could go with you to the lake. He could say, why are you throwing your line over there? Clearly, you're supposed to throw it over here. Catch. That'd be good. Maybe you've had the thought, what if Jesus was here today now? They didn't have cameras and recording devices back then. What if we could just set Jesus up a YouTube channel? Wouldn't that be great? We wouldn't have to worry about who to listen to. Wouldn't have to worry how to know what's... We'd just get on the YouTube channel and there he would be, the latest video for the week, and we could listen to him teach him parables, tell stories. That would be great. If he was here now, we could do that. Seems like it'd be better if he was here now. In all seriousness, no joking, you've probably had times in your life where you've had a loved one who was very ill. And you've thought to yourself, man... You know, when Jesus was walking on the earth, he healed people of things like this. The lame walked and the blind received their sight. And the mute spoke. The dead were raised. You think, I don't know. Seems like it'd be better if you were here. Jesus said, verse 7, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. I think it's interesting, he didn't just say, it's to your advantage that I go away, but he prefaced it with, I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. Can I just give you a few words to think about as you process verse 7? How about the word crucifixion, number one? You understand when Jesus says he's going away, he's not going to Hawaii. He's not taking a vacation. He's going to the cross where he will suffer and die for sinners. Is it good for you? Is it better for you that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? I'd say it's better. Number one. How about the word exaltation? After Jesus was crucified and buried, he was raised from the dead three days later. And after a period of about 40 days appearing to his disciples, he ascended to heaven to the right hand of the Father, to the throne of the universe where he rules and he reigns over the cosmos. You understand, Jesus in the incarnation became a servant, and it was a shocking thing for Almighty God to be born in a manger and to take the form of a servant and to die on a cross. It is a good thing that Jesus exalted currently, today, on the throne of the universe, ruling and reigning over the cosmos. That's a good thing. How about the word, thirdly, intercession? We're going to talk in a few weeks about the work of the Holy Spirit. He intercedes for believers when you don't know what to pray, and he intercedes with groanings too deep for words. If you just keep reading a few verses past 
the place where Paul says that in Romans, he also says that Jesus is interceding for you. You understand, up on the throne of the universe, he's not just watching videos, TV, football games, twiddling his thumbs, flipping through. He is interceding for his people. Is it good for you that the Lord Jesus Christ would be at the right hand of the Father praying for you? I think it's good for you that he's doing that. What about this word procession? Week one, who is the Holy Spirit? He's the one who proceeds from the Father. He is the third person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal. Listen, when Jesus says that he will send the helper, the spirit of truth, you're not getting a second-rate or a third-rate version of God. You're getting truly God. How many of you lived in Odessa when we had a restaurant called Chicken for You? Remember this place? We had two of them. We had one downtown. We had one out here on 191. I'll be honest with you. I like Chicken for You. It was good. When we had it, we didn't have all the Chick-fil-A's we have now, and the lines were shorter, and you could get in, and the food was pretty good. You go in. It looks just like a Chick-fil-A. Everything's red and white, a little bit of yellow mixed in. You look up at the menu, you don't even have to read the menu if you know the Chick-fil-A menu. You just order your Chick-fil-A usual at Chicken for You and you get a sandwich or a spicy sandwich or nuggets or whatever. It was all exactly the same, except it wasn't, was it? I'm telling you, I liked it. I thought it was good. We used to go eat there. But it was not Chick-fil-A. It was Chicken for You. And I'm afraid that when Jesus says it's better for you, it's to your advantage that I go away because I'm going to send someone else. That a lot of us in the back of our minds think, okay, this is like going from Chick-fil-A to chicken for you. I mean, we had the best, Jesus, and now we're going to have to settle for some second-rate knockoff imitation, kind of the same, but not really the same. If you understand what the Bible says about the doctrine of the Trinity, you understand that when Jesus says... The Father sent me. You're not getting someone who is less glorious than the Father. You're getting the only begotten Son of the Father. And when Jesus says, I'm going away, but I'm going to ask the Father, and the Father's going to send to you, and I'm going to send to you the Spirit of truth, the Helper, the one who eternally proceeds from the Father, you are getting co-equal, co-eternal, third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. You're not getting anything less. You're not getting a cheap knockoff or a, a poor imitation, but you're getting the real thing. You're getting God with his people. Jesus says it's to your advantage. I'm telling you the truth. He says it's to your advantage that I go away and send the helper. That leads us to the truth we're building to here. Number four, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Conviction. The Greek word here in verse 8 is elenko. Elenko. It means to expose or to reveal your sin with the aim that you repent. So it's not a mean-spirited exposure of your sin. It's not like your enemy's saying you're terrible, you're the worst, you're no good, you're dirty. This is the Holy Spirit revealing your sin to you with the aim and the intent that you would turn from your sin, that you would repent and you would look to Jesus Christ for life. So Jesus, in verse 8, look what he says. When he comes, he, 
when he comes, not it. When he, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit of truth, the helper. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he explains each of those statements. If you want to know what he means, look what he says in verse 9. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. The Holy Spirit convicts people who don't believe in Jesus that it's a problem that they don't believe in Jesus. And until the Holy Spirit does that work, nobody really thinks it's much of a problem. Most people think, well, I'm pretty good, I'm pretty moral, I'm pretty upstanding. But all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit shows up and convicts you. Whoa, 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 whoa. You don't believe in Jesus. That means you're dead in your trespasses and your sins. You're separated from God. You're estranged from Him. You're alienated. You're an enemy. And the Holy Spirit brings that conviction because they don't believe. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. He's talking about the ascension. He's talking about the resurrection and the ascension as He's reseated on the throne of the universe at the right hand of the Father. And He's saying the Spirit will convict the world of righteousness because I'm gone. Meaning, the Spirit will convict people that I really was who I said I was. And I really accomplished what I set out to accomplish. And the seal on that is the truth of the resurrection and the ascension. So I'm going back to the Father. You're not going to see me. And the Spirit's going to convict people of righteousness. That Jesus was the truly righteous one who died our death and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Verse 11, concerning judgment, because you'll... uh, See me no longer is verse 10, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of this world. In the Gospel of John, the ruler of this world is Satan. And his judgment takes place at the cross. So Jesus is saying there's a judgment that took place at the cross. And the Holy Spirit will convict people, will show people, convince people, will drive it deep down into their hearts that what happened in the cross was a judgment. Sin was punished at the cross. Satan was defeated at the cross. And unless you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will one day face a judgment. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of these things. I appreciate what Kent Hughes said just in summarizing this. His commentary on John, he said, Apart from the Holy Spirit, human beings do not understand spiritual realities. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to bring to the world's consciousness three things. Correct perception of sin, correct perception of righteousness, and a correct perception of judgment. That's the work of the Spirit, is to bring conviction to the world. Now, let me give you three very quick clarifications or qualifications. I just want to make sure that we don't assume we're all on the same page I want to be clear about a couple of things. Just clarifications about the work of the Spirit and conviction. Number one, conviction from the Holy Spirit is not exactly 100% the same as your conscience. You have a conscience. Every person has a conscience. But the Bible is clear that your conscience can be seared and hard and built on a foundation other than the Word of God. You know and I know there's people all over the world today doing all sorts of abominable things and their conscience doesn't bother them one bit. The Holy Spirit, when He brings conviction, will work 
on and in and through your conscience. But those two things are not exactly the same. The Holy Spirit is a person. Your conscience is a part of you. Don't equate the two. Every time you feel some tinge of conscience or bothered about something, don't assume it's automatically the Holy Spirit. But do the hard work of making sure your conscience is informed by the Scriptures. Because the Spirit will use the truth of the Scriptures to shape your conscience. Secondly, conviction from the Holy Spirit is not a universal human experience. Not everyone experiences this conviction. There's just no other way to put it. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7 that some people experience godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Remember that word, elenko, to expose your sin with the aim that you repent? Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to death. One is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The other is just your misguided conscience. Not every person is convicted by the Holy Spirit in the exact same way. We'll talk more about that as this series goes on. Number three, conviction from the Holy Spirit is not an isolated work. And I mean this on a couple of levels. I mean this in the sense that the Holy Spirit bringing conviction to people, that work is not separate from the work of the Father and the work of the Son in redemption. The Trinity works together to save sinners. The, the Holy Spirit's not just out there doing His best, His own thing, but He is working in tandem with the Father and with the Son. And when He does the work of conviction, it's never an isolated work. We'll see next week that the work of conviction is intimately tied to the work of regeneration. The Spirit doesn't just convict people and leave you to feel miserable about yourself. But He convicts you of sin and He gives you new life. He takes out your heart of stone and He gives you a heart of flesh. He moves you to be a person who trusts the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit doesn't work this conviction just out of thin air, but He uses gospel proclamation, the preaching of the Word. And that brings us to this next truth that is really important. The Holy Spirit uses the inspired Word of God to bring conviction to the world. That's how He works. Now listen, I talk to people all the time. When you start to get specific about who the Holy Spirit is and how He works, they push back and they say, you're putting the Holy Spirit in the box. You're trying to limit what the Holy Spirit can do. No one wants to put the Holy Spirit in the box, okay? I don't want to put the Holy Spirit in a box. What I want to do is understand what the Holy Spirit has said about who He is and how He works. And I want to make up false ideas about what he's doing today that have no grounding in what he's already said in the scriptures. So we're not trying to put him in a box. We're just trying to listen to what he has said. And what you see in the scriptures is that the Holy Spirit uses the Bible that he inspired to bring conviction. There is unity to his work. What does Paul say in Ephesians 6? He's talking about the armor of God, put on the breastplate, put on the helmet, put on the shoes. He says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is what? It's the Word of God. It's like the Spirit has a sword, a book that He's inspired. What do we read in Hebrews chapter 4? The Word of God is living and it's active 
and it is sharper than what? A two-edged sword, and it pierces to the very core of who we are as human beings. That's what the Holy Spirit uses to bring conviction. Can I just give you three examples of how this played out in the New Testament and how you should expect it to play out today? How about, number one, Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost? What happened? The Holy Spirit came, filled the believers, the church was born, Peter stood up, Peter preached. What did he preach about? Did he make it up on the fly? No, he actually opened the Old Testament Scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he walked through biblical truth. And when Peter got done, what do we read? The men of Jerusalem were cut to the heart. Did Peter do that? Holy Spirit did that. What did the Holy Spirit use? His sword. The Scriptures. How about Paul in Corinth? 1 Corinthians 2. You go back and read what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, When I showed up in Corinth, I was terrified of you people. I was trembling to stand up, and I didn't have anything brilliant to say. All I did is I talked about Jesus Christ crucified, and the Spirit brought conviction. That was the Spirit's work, not Paul's work. What about Paul in Thessalonica? He said the same thing, almost the same idea to the church in Thessalonica. He said, look, I know that God has chosen you and he's brought you into his kingdom and he has saved you. I know this because when we preach the word of God, you received it not as the word of men, but as the word of God in full conviction that came from the Holy Spirit. That's how the Spirit works. People of God proclaim the word of God and the Spirit of God uses the word that he inspired to bring conviction about sin and righteousness, and judgment. How does this shape us? One last question. How does this truth about the Holy Spirit's work of convicting the world change us, uh, change us as the people of God? I'm going to use the word pneumatology here. That's the word for the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Pneuma is a Greek word for spirit. Ology, the study of or the science of a thing. So when we talk about pneumatology, we're talking about the biblical truth about the Holy Spirit. How does that change us? Just three ways. Biblical pneumatology changes our doxology, which is our worship. When you understand the truth about who the Holy Spirit is and how He works, it changes your worship. The job of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit that we've seen this morning is to bring conviction about sin. That means when we gather together for worship, we have nothing to boast about before God. We have no great thing to offer God. It means the Holy Spirit has brought conviction to our hearts and our worship is a response, only a response. We don't initiate worship, God does. We respond by acknowledging the glory of the triune God and all that he's done to save us. Now listen, when you listen to songs that fall under the broad category of Christian songs, listen to who they're really about. Some of them are about God, the triune God. Many of them are about us and what we intend to do for God. 
We sang a new song about the Holy Spirit this morning. I love it. It's a fantastic biblical song. We have looked high and low for songs about the Holy Spirit, and almost all of them focus on us or some unbiblical, vague, generic, undefined idea that the Holy Spirit's going to come and do a thing. We don't really know what that thing is. In our worship, we're not focusing on us, but we're coming broken and humble because the Holy Spirit has convicted us of our sin. That's His work. That's not putting Him in a box. That's just listening to what He says He's going to come to do, to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Number two, biblical pneumatology pneumatology changes our ecclesiology, which is our church. I tell you this not because I think it's a problem here or at every church in town, but I tell you this because there may come a day where you don't live here and go to this church. You may be looking for a new church. And I just want you to be aware that there are churches all over North America, all over the state of Texas, all over our town, where the entire church is built on this idea. Okay? The entire church is built on this idea. The reason people don't come to church is because church is boring and old-fashioned. And if we could be cool enough, edgy enough, funny enough, or fun enough, creative enough, all those people will come. It ignores the fundamental biblical truth that the main reason people don't go to church is that they don't want anything to do with the branches because they don't want anything to do with the vine. It's because people, apart from God's grace in their lives, are dead in their trespasses and sins. And yet I'm telling you that entire churches and networks and denominations have been built on the idea that if we could just be whatever enough, all these people will come. These churches say things like, this is not your grandma's church. If your grandma wouldn't go, you shouldn't go. These churches say things like, this is a new way of doing church, which we don't need. We don't need. We just need the old way. Now look, I'm not saying let's cling to to tradition and never change and let's celebrate nostalgia and let's be old-fashioned for the sake of being old-fashioned. We don't do that here and that's not what I'm saying to you. I'm just saying fundamentally you have to think about how this biblical truth about the Holy Spirit shapes your church. There are no people out there who are simply, the only reason they're not interested in church is that the carpet smells bad or the music is too old-fashioned. That's an excuse. That's a facade on top of the real reason that people, apart from God's grace, are dead in their trespasses and sins, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict them of that deadness. Number three, biblical pneumatology changes our missiology, meaning the way we do evangelism and missions. Here's a quote from James Boyce. He says, we cannot convict men of sin, neither can those to whom the gospel is preached convict themselves. I can't convict you of sin. You can't convict any other human being of sin. 
or of righteousness or of judgment. That's the work of the Holy Spirit of God only. When we think about evangelism and missions, okay, what am I talking about? I'm talking about preaching. I'm talking about Sunday school. I'm talking about VBS in our church. I'm talking about organizations that we partner with like First Priority. I'm talking about mission trips you take to Kenya. I'm talking about anything that would fall under the label of evangelism, missions, personal gospel witness, all of it. Our job is not to water down the gospel so much to a point where we think the world might be interested in it. It's not our job. And our job is not to be cool or funny enough in our presentation so that we can sort of bait and switch with the world. Like we'll get them in with the funny, then we'll hit them with the right cross of the gospel. That way we'll really get them. Our job is not to manipulate people in a heavy-handed way to pressure them to pray some sort of formulaic prayer and raise your hand, close your eyes, make it, all that kind of stuff. That's not our job. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? I showed up fear and trembling, and all I did is I talked about Jesus Christ crucified. That's all he had to say. It's the truth about Jesus. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. Our job is to speak honestly about God's holiness. It's to speak honestly about our sinfulness. It's to speak honestly about who Jesus is and what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. It's to speak honestly to people about the call, the gospel call on their life to repent and to believe. And it's our job in evangelism and missions to hold out the hope of eternal life and a relationship with the living God. Our job is to be faithful to the message the Spirit has inspired in the Scriptures. And it's the Spirit's work to bring conviction about sin and righteousness and judgment. So this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And just to be very clear, the Lord's Supper is not open to anyone and everyone. But as we think about the work of the Holy Spirit, the, the Lord's Supper is a celebration for people who have experienced the kind of conviction that we're talking about this morning. Conviction about sin and righteousness and judgment. It's a celebration of gospel truth of what Jesus has accomplished for us. For people who have been convicted of their sin, who have repented, who have believed, who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and been obedient to His command to be baptized. So if that's you, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. If that's not you, we'd love to talk with you about what it means to genuinely repent of your sin and genuinely put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in response to the work of the Spirit convicting you. One of the things the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11, which we're going to read from, is that a person ought to examine themselves, himself, herself, before they participate in the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. The examination is not, have I been good or bad? Because we can just cut to the chase and say, we've all sinned. None of us are good enough. None of us are worthy enough. But the examination is to say, have I felt the conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit? Have I responded to that conviction in repentance? Am I trusting in the perfect finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the examination that takes place before a person 
takes the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to give you a minute or two to do that, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together.